For those of you that are visiting, we are busy with this series out of the book of Corinthians. Corinthians has a lot to teach us as modern-day believers, and the church in Corinth was a vibrant, young church in a multicultural community, much like London, people from all over the world, and Paul goes and plants a church right there, and within a very short space of time, he's established something, but there are always problems in churches, and Paul has to write to this church to address the problems in the church. And there are seven problems that he addresses in this church. We are still busy with problem number one in the first three chapters. And the problem that he's been addressing to them is they've fallen headlong into division in the church because they've started to compare different preaching gifts in the church and say, well, we like Apollos, we like Paul, we like Peter, and it's brought division into the church. And remember last week we looked at the end of chapter 3 where Paul said, don't do that. If you do that, it causes division and you, you're forcing us to be a little bit like the wisdom teachers of our day. And in, in the ancient world, there were the, these wisdom teachers that went around with their particular take on wisdom and truth. And remember in Acts 17, Paul debates with the wisdom teachers in the Rockbus in, in Athens. And he kind of puts his point of view. And uh, all those wisdom teachers had their own little band of disciples that went around saying, my guy's the best. And Paul, said, Paul says, don't do that in the church because you, then you're forcing us to be like them and to have like a little band of our disciples. And we're not interested in that. Remember, we finished chapter 3 last week. All things are yours, says Paul. You can enjoy all of these teaching gifts because the whole cosmos is yours. And actually God says life is yours, death is yours, the future is yours, and all of these things are for you to enjoy. So don't be like a person in a muddy pool drinking muddy water when actually you've got the finest wine. You've got the ocean right next door to you that you can enjoy. Don't be playing in this little muddy pool saying your guy's the best. Enjoy everybody. Yes? Okay, and that's what he's saying. And it'd be, we would be wise to listen to Paul in the 21st century with so much stuff on the internet, so much stuff on Instagram, so, um, so many celebrity pastors all over the world. I'm the greatest. And we're going to look at Paul who now bores down onto what an apostle is, what a pastor is, what a preacher is. And he hones in like a laser beam in chapter 4. Here we go. We're going to look first five verses of 1 Corinthians 4. Read with me. This is how one should regard us. Notice right at the beginning, he's including himself in this. This is how you should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they must be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted or found not guilty, is another way of saying that. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring light to the things that are now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And so here Paul is like in a laser-like way, honing in again on this issue that has brought division, this judgmental attitude in the church between himself and these other apostles. And basically he's saying, Peter, Paul, and Apollos, 
all have been a blessing to this church. And actually, I have been a blessing to this church in a special way because it was birthed through me. And, he has, and now we're going to look exactly what he says about servants and stewards. And Paul highlights also, do you notice he's now looking towards the future? He's highlighting that final day. He's saying, actually, there is going to be a day of final judgment. And sometimes as Christians, we don't actually like to talk about judgment, right? That in the end, God is going to judge all things. But it, it actually is part of believing that God is good and God is fair and God is just that the final judgment must happen. Now, for us that believe by faith, there's no judgment for your sin. Yes? Your sin has been dealt with. You don't have to fear the day of judgment because what is going to happen on the day of judgment when we rise again and we meet Christ, you are going to be receive your, com your, con your commendation, your well done for how you've lived. Your sin is judged already. You don't have to fear the day of judgment, right? But Paul is pointing to this final day and it's, he's saying that it's because God is good and just the final end must come. And also... It's not just about punishing wickedness in the earth. It's also about there's a world that needs to be completely restored. Yes? A new heaven, a new earth where all of creation is perfect. This is also part of that final judgment where all things will be made new. And all things will be restored and there will be no pain. There will be no suffering. And this is an ama amazingly powerful part of what we believe as Christians. God is good, and because God is good, there must be an end to evil. There must be a judgment on all things that are broken, and all things must be restored. And we need to look forward to that day when that happens with a great sense of worship in my heart, that God is going to restore all things and put all things right. Amen. And so here... Every day on social media, every day on television, every day in the newspapers, we stories, see stories from all over the world of injustice, violence, murder, war. And unlike other, some other religious traditions who actually uh, teach that the world is not so bad after all, or like Buddhism, that all that we perceive is actually an illusion, is that it's not real. Christianity and, and, and Judaism has always taught that the world is good, the world is breathtakingly beautiful. It was created by a loving God. And unfortunately, evil also is real. And evil is powerful and a horrible intruder into this perfect world that God has created. That's always been part of what Christian faith has taught. The world is good. Everything in it is beautiful. And it's made by a loving God. And yet sin and evil has invaded that space. And one day sin and evil will be dealt with. And sooner or later, God is going to judge and put things right. And that's part of believing that he's a good God. And Paul puts it in here and says he's going to open everything that is hidden, including the thoughts and the tensions of people's hearts. Now, it's very interesting to me that in our 21st century, a lot of people are very passionate about justice. And that's a wonderful thing. People are passionate about caring for the planet, the environment. People are passionate about equality Fair wages for fair work, absolutely. De dealing with sexual exploitation, economic slavery, these are all powerful and wonderful things. And all of them are motivated by a sense of justice, that something needs to be put right in the world that is wrong. Would you agree? That's what motivates us. And we applaud that. We say, yes, we are comfortable with the idea that we need to put right things that are wrong. And there's a righteous anger that rises up and says, we're going to do something about it. 
and we love that. And yet, simultaneously, we don't like the idea that there is a just God who is going to judge our sin personally. We don't like that so much. How can God be angry with me? I'm a good guy. Yes? That's the tone of our culture. But God has to, if He's good and just, He has to right everything that is broken in the world and wrong in the world, including my personal sin, needs to be dealt with. And your personal sin. And that's why Jesus is the Savior that we worship with all of our hearts because He's already done that for us. Amen. So we, we don't need to fear that. But that is included in this thing of all things being put it right. And so, it's a, so that, that idea is, it seems to be a little inconsistent to me that we can, we can be motivated by one and not quite like the other because all things need to be put right. And now at, in this passage, Paul's, Paul's point is it's tempting for us to tell God and advise God on what we think He should do <laughs> before that time, before that final day, to settle some scores and put everything right ahead of that final day when He judges all things. And that sometimes includes us telling what we think God should do. And so here Paul in this portion is trying to put right this half-Christian, half-pagan view of the Corinthian church. And they seem to think because they are now born again, that they are in Christ, combined with this worldly wisdom that they love and they have been seeking after, the Sophia wisdom that we looked at, in their eyes, that gives them the right to pass judgment on other people, including Paul. Yeah, that's, that's what he's driving at. And so if Paul doesn't quite measure up to their standards of what they think an anointed preacher, an anointed apostle should be, well, then they're going to jolly well tell him that he doesn't measure up. And that's what they've been doing. They've been saying, Paul, you're not quite what we like, what we expect. You're not anointed enough. You're not charismatic enough. We like Apollos. We like Peter. And he's saying, in a sense, he's fighting to justify who he is. And so in, in a real sense, these verses are really telling us, Paul is telling us how we should view pastors, how we should view teachers and preachers and in, the, in the right way. He's concerned that we do not judge preachers or pastors if they teach in a straightforward, simple way, rather than with mighty eloquence and a great PowerPoint presentation and perfect slick performance on, on, the, um, on the platform. He's saying that's not how you judge someone who's a pastor or teacher. And he points us to that. We, we should be really, really take good note of that, especially in our Instagram age, especially when in church there's a pressure to put on a good show. Great worship, the best musicians, great lights, you know the whole tutti, that it must be perfect. And somehow that is kind of more spiritual and righteous. Paul says no, it's the wrong way of looking at it. Remember it, he's saying to these guys, remember that final day of judgment is going to come. And it is right that God is going to judge all my faults. Yes, my fault in his apostle, yes. But all things are going to be brought into light. And he's kind of reminding the Corinthians, he's saying, remember that day is coming for you as well. <laughs> that all your frailties, all your failings, they're also going to come out to the light because God is going to judge all things. Yeah. So just be aware of what you say about others because actually by the same token, God is going to measure you and your life. So just, just be careful how you speak. And so... 
This is the first reminder is that of, of, the, of how they should look at preachers and servants of God and as, as apostles. The first reminder, he says in verse 1, is this. You should regard us as servants, as stewards of the mysteries of God. I want to look at those two words because they really frame the whole paragraph. What does Paul mean when he says servant? What does Paul mean when he says stewards? And the, the Greek is very helpful here. The Greek translated for servants of Christ is haperetas. Haperetas is a specific word. How many of you have seen Ben-Hur? Now I'm really showing my age, right? Ben-Hur, great old movie with Charlton Heston. Do you remember the galley? Do you remember the ship that he rode in? Yes? That was called a trireme. It meant three layers of slaves that rode and were chained in the galleys. Paul is saying, uh, we as apostles are servants of Christ. Harper Etas. Harper Etas was the lowest slave in the galley that was on the third row right at the bottom. The first to get drowned when the ship went down. We are servants. Harper Etas. That's what we are of a far superior one whom we worship. His name is Jesus. Yes? First thing that we need to establish, apostles, pastors, teachers, are hapaetas. We are servants. We are like slaves in the galley ship just getting on and pulling on the oars and saying, come on, people, we are doing this together. Oh, no, but we are the CEO. We are the chairman of the board. We have our own parking space. We expect, we expect certain privileges in the church. We, we wear Armani suits. We expect that we have a really good salary and a fat expense account. No, says Paul. No, we're not that. We are servants. Hyper etas. We are the lowest of the low slave that is getting on rowing the galley for the great king. First qualification, Paul says about servants. Second, he says, um, we are stewards. And here the word is oikonos, which is basically referring to the Greek and Rome household, where there was also a slave who was put in charge of the entire household to administer the treasures of the household on behalf of the master. On behalf of the father of the house. And he was the slave that was given the great responsibility. None of that belonged to him. It wasn't his. He was there as a steward to administer it on behalf of the master, of the father. And Paul says that. He says, well, no, apostles are hapetas. Uh, we, are, we are these slaves. We, we are the ones that serve. And at the same time, we are also stewards. And all of this does not belong to us. There's a Father in heaven, the great God of creation in Jesus. He is the one who owns everything. And I am simply a steward. I administer the gift of the mystery of God. And what is the mystery of God that we know Paul has already told us what that is? That this great story of salvation that was hidden for ages and the prophets hinted at it and they had a sense of what it was and they were anticipating a Messiah. Now that great plan has been made plain in Jesus and we can all see. And those that believe by faith, that mystery is no longer a mystery. It is plain. It is obvious. We know Christ. And if we know Christ, we have seen God the Father. And we are an administrator of that mystery, we, we, that treasure, this great treasure that God has blessed us with. Preachers, teachers, apostles, they are administrators, stewards of that treasure. Yes, 
Remember that brilliant scene from Lord of the Rings? For all of you, no Lord of the Rings nerds. When they get to Minas Tirith, the great white city, and there is a steward who's been left in charge of Minas Tirith, who's been completely unfaithful. He's not um, prepared. He's not anticipated anything. And the orcs are coming. And what does Gandalf do? He goes to him and he says, steward, you have not been faithful. There's a king coming. His name is Aragorn, and he's the king. He's the rightful Judah, and you as a steward have not been faithful to the treasure of Minas Tirith, and you are going to pay for it now with your life. And he does. Sorry, that was a bit loud. In the same way, we as preachers, teachers, apostles, we are stewards for the great King Jesus, and we administer faithfully on his behalf all of the treasures of his kingdom that are available to everyone. Yes, this is the kingdom. This is what grace is. This is what the kingdom is. This hidden treasure that has been made plain. And so all of us in our modern context, I think Paul would say this to us as he's thinking about stewards and apostles and what servants and stewards mean. He would say this, don't treat your pastor as some kind of celebrity. And also pastors, don't allow yourself to be put on a pedestal. Be authentic. Be real. I would hope that if you came into our office, I would be the same as what you see now here. That would not be a completely different person. That is weird. Paul says, do not be like that in the church. Be authentic. Do not allow yourself to be put on a pedestal as a pastor. You are hapatesas. You are slave. You are servant. You are steward of the mysteries of God. Don't count yourself more highly than you are. He says that of himself, doesn't he? And yet so much of our church, I was just reflecting again this morning, the church in the world is full of celebrities, pastors that have allowed themselves to be elevated to this kind of position of the CEO, the chairman of the board, the main man in the house, and actually God says, you are servant to the people. You see, Paul says when we do that, we also default to this thing that brings division where we force pastors and churches to become different football teams and we judge between the football teams and say, yes, we cheer for that one and boo, we don't like that one. Am I being too blunt? This is the world in which we live. This is the church culture, unfortunately, in which we live and I believe God wants us to live differently. And put it right as best as we can in our small context that we don't live like this. Apostles and preachers are simply servants called to be stewards. That's, that's Paul's first reminder. Secondly, his reminder to them is what is required of apostles and preachers is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Pastors and preachers are simply servants, yes. A servant doesn't aim to be famous. A servant doesn't aim to be rich. A servant doesn't aim at anything other than loyalty, faithfulness to his master, honesty, and integrity to do what the master says. That's what a servant aims at. Yes? That's what we're called to be as those that preach and teach. And, and that's true for all of us as, as servants of Jesus as well, that we are faithful ministers aiming at loving God and serving his people and just getting on with it. All right? Thirdly, 
Paul says those that preach and minister shouldn't be too affected by what others think of them. <laughs> Why do I say that? Well, verse 3. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any other human court. In other words, he doesn't worry too much about people's praise or people's criticism that comes. He doesn't worry too much about that. He, giving in to praise and, and being motivated by the praise of people or by the criticism of people is a one-way ticket down to depression and fear and bondage, if that's what we're given to as we lead. Paul says, no, you don't, you don't aim at that. He's primarily emphasizing that those that preach and teach, those that are apostles or, or pastors, are primarily servants of God. And yes, they serve the people, but primarily they are servants of God as the head of the house, as the master of the family. They are primarily servants of Him as they serve people. And this is where the church gets into um, problems because a lot of people would like the pastor to be the employee, to be, to be the, uh, the lowest galley slave. What do I mean by that? Well, when we get into this expectation that actually it's the pastor's job to do everything, sweep the floor, take out the garbage, clean the toilet, preach the message, fix the heater, arrange the chairs. He's the, he's the, he's the you know, that's his job. I mean, he's the pastor. We employ him. As soon as we get into that, we're in trouble. As soon as we get into the pastor saying, I'm the main man. I deserve this. I deserve to be treated well. I want my parking. I want my salary check to be nice and big. And actually, I want an expense account as well, you know. Then the church is also in trouble. <laughs> Do you get what Paul is saying? He's saying, no, no, there's a balance in all of this. You realize your position as those that are apostles and pastors and teachers. People also honor your leaders so your life goes easy and it's good for them as well. And the whole church goes together. But you don't have those expectations as the basic thing. Yes? Everyone's looking very nervous this morning. And then he says, I, in fact, I don't even judge myself for I'm not aware of anything against myself but I'm not made innocent by that. In other words, Paul does think about his life. He does think about his ministry. He does think, am I being effective? Am I doing what um, God wants me to do? But he doesn't condemn himself. He doesn't allow himself to get blown off course by thinking about what he's doing well and what he's not doing well and what the future holds and what is God going to think and what are the people going to think? And oh, and then he gets paralyzed and he doesn't do anything. No, he simply gets on with serving God and loving people and he doesn't bother too much about constantly worrying about how he is doing. How many of us live our lives worrying about how we are doing? How are we doing for our family? How are we doing for our children? How am I doing as a parent? How am I doing as a husband? How am I doing as a wife? Paul says, I, I do think about it, but I'm not too paralyzed by that. I don't really give much attention to that because in the end, even when I ask God to show me each day and I do that, that's why he says my conscience is clear. I ask God to show me, help me to see what needs to change. Yep, I do that. But my conscience isn't clear. That, that doesn't even make me innocent. What makes me innocent is that one day God, who knows all things and judges perfectly, is going to look on my life and say, well done for that. And in the end, that's what I live for. Amen? And so that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, 
I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not acquitted by this. I'm not made innocent, for it is the Lord, Christos, there, the word, the Christ, the Lord, He judges me. And that's what I put my trust in, that He's faithful and true in all things, and He will judge fairly. In other words, as He listens to the voice of the Spirit, He keeps His conscience clear, knowing it's not others that he needs to be fearful of or their opinion of him to judge his shortcomings. Rather, that's the job, the job of God his Father. And that's why this metaphor of the church's family, that God is the father of the house, is so powerful because it puts it completely in, into context. And so he argues that as God's servants, apostles, pastors, teachers are accountable to God as their master, the father, the head of the family, primarily before they are, they are accountable to other members of the same family. And so that's why he says, I don't really bother very much if you like me or you don't. I'm serving God. I'm getting on with it. And I'm living for the reward that he's going to give me on that final day. Amen? And so he, he's, he's saying all of this. And then he lands finally on this verse. Therefore... Do not pronounce judgment before time, before the Lord comes, who will bring light to the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his, his commendation from God. Paul is saying, finally, leave judgment to judgment day. Leave it to God. In other words, don't live a judgmental life. Now, I, I really just want to unpack this a little, little this morning. Don't live a judgmental life. Does Paul mean that we're not to have opinions about things in the world? He doesn't mean that at all. Does he mean that we're not to have opinions about other people? No, he doesn't mean that at all. A wise person often discerns the motives of others. Isn't that true? In 1 Kings chapter 4, we have that story of Solomon discerning between the woman and what the motives of each of them were, and that's wisdom. The Bible also commends wisdom. We need to, we need to be wise. Later on in the letter, in chapter 5, uh, in verse 12, Paul actually says to the guys in the Corinthian church, actually, your sexual behavior is a problem. You're living immorally, and actually that needs to be dealt with. He says, make a judgment. If there are people that are sexually immoral in the church, if ask them once, ask them twice, ask them to repent, put it right. If they don't, have nothing to do with them. So he's saying, no, actually, you do make judgments. We all make judgments each day of, of our lives on what is good and what is right. It's not that we don't have opinions or judgments. He says later in chapter 6 that when people are fighting as brothers in the church about various business issues uh, in the church community, yeah, you guys need to sort it out. Make a judgment. Make a call. Sort it out. So he's not saying don't make any judgments in, in your life. He's being specific. He's saying the judgment that needs to stop for the Corinthians is that they must stop judging his ministry in comparison with other people's ministry. That's what he's saying. He's making it specific to that. Do not judge before the appointed time. God will judge on the final day. Don't judge until that day has come. And unfortunately, having said of this, all of us know myriad stories of church leaders who have refused to admit their, their faults. In some cases, out of pride, they've insisted on their innocence and refused discipline. They've refused correction. And over a period of time, everyone begins to see their foolishness, their error, and they won't admit it. And it's always terribly, terribly, terribly sad when that happens and affects the body of Christ. Uh, we all know stories of church leaders fallen sexually, fallen with finances, fallen with uh, leadership 
issues, being overbearing, whatever it is. We all know those. And that's why Paul says all the time, all the way through, what we need to do as leaders is keep a soft heart and open heart to the Holy Spirit that day by day we are saying to him, Jesus, show me if there's anything that I've done that needs to change. Please show me. Amen. Absolutely. See, someone agrees up there. And, and yet, even knowing that possibility, do you notice that Paul doesn't back down in his challenge to the Corinthians? He's, he insists. He says, don't play off one personality against the other. Don't judge how good an apostle I have been or might have been. The truth is that the Corinthian church owed their very life, their very existence to Paul, who had planted and birthed that church. And so, in conclusion... How, how, there's just two very simple ways I think we can apply this to our own lives um, as 21st century Christians, 2,000 years later. On the, these verses, on the one hand, they, we, they remind us that we as, as God's people are not to be those that are forever examining our, our leaders, our pastors and preachers to see if they measure up to a standard that we have set of anointing, charisma, presentation, or how we think they should be. Yeah, that's what I think Paul is saying. Don't get into that kind of, that kind of game where you, you are sitting as the judge in the pew of how great the worship was, how good the preaching was, how, how the person, you know, uh, when I, when I, in my past, I had um, pressure to be a certain kind of preacher and um, the word that was used was, you must be compelling. You must be a compelling person. You, you, you must, in how you present the gospel, have something that people will latch on to say, that's really compelling. And so what that really means is that pe preachers start to perform because they, they want to convince and they want to, and I, 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 that was a pressure for me for a long time. And then I realized, no, that's 21st century garbage, nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Paul says he doesn't worry too much about that. He worries about being faithful to a message of Jesus. And that's what he's most concerned about. Guarding this treasure, this treasure that has been handed down to him that he wants to faithfully pass on to others. Does that mean that I'm trying to preach badly? Not at all. Does that mean that I'm trying to com communicate as obscurely as I can? Not at all. Does that mean that I'm, I'm trying to use examples that no one can relate to? Of course it doesn't. We try and do our best with the gifts that we have. But we are not aiming at being that. We are aiming at being servants. We are aiming at being stewards of this mystery. This mystery, this treasure that God has given us that we would faithfully point it on to other people. So, so rather, I would believe that Paul would remind us in this that what he's really interested in, what God is really interested in is faithfulness, not success in terms of what the world sees as, uh, as, as success. And that's what requ is required of servants and stewards, those that are pastors and teachers. And secondly, although I don't think Paul intended this when he was writing it, it's certainly implied by him that those who preach and teach must recognize in themselves as those that have been entrusted with a great treasure, and they are under the authority of a king who has asked them to administer that treasure faithfully. I think Paul would also say that to us. And their trustworthiness as stewards of this treasure will be finally judged on that day by the Lord Jesus himself. 
And we need to keep that firmly in our sights as we live our Christian lives as God's servants. He will judge, not on the basis of our self-evaluation of how we think we've done or how worthy we thought we've been in the Christian context or in our sphere, what our pecking order is in our denomination or the pecking order is in, in terms of our team that we relate to, how far up the ladder are we? No, it's not going to judge on any of those things. Rather, he's just going to judge on, have you been, my son, a faithful steward of this mystery, this message that has been trusted to you, this gospel that I've called you to preach and proclaim? Have you done that faithfully without changing it, without watering it down, without excusing the difficult parts, faithfully preaching the message as Christ revealed it to you and handing it on to those that are coming after you? He will judge and the only thing that is going to count on that final day for our commendation as those that serve him is have we been faithful to the gospel itself? That's what he's going to hold us accountable for. And each of us, each of us, you and I, we will receive our commendation by him. We will receive our reward. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your father's inheritance. Yes. That's what we live for, all of us. Let's not get distracted. Let's not aim at the wrong things. Let's aim at the right things, as Paul encourages us so wonderfully in this letter. Remember, we are simply servants. We are simply hyper etas, galley slaves <laughs> in the great kingdom ship. We are simply oikomenos. We are simply stewards in God's household. He is the author of every good thing. He is the great king who owns all the treasure. And we simply administer what he blesses us with as faithfully as we can. We don't put ourselves on a pedestal. We don't say we're the main man. We don't expect things of other people. We live simply. We live honoring him. And his promise is that he will reward those that love him. And we will never lack for anything when we live like that. Amen? Let's be a church that lives like this. Let's be a great encouragement to each other. Let's lift up each other's hands. Let's strengthen when our knees feel weak and our arms feel feeble. Let's, let's encourage each other, lift each other's arms up to live like this. This is how God wants his kingdom, kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Not through CEO, chairman of board, kind of guys that want to rule the world, but through servants who recognize there's a great king. And the great king has called us and his hands upon our lives. And he's asked us to live a certain way. And as we do that, he will bless us in every way imaginable. Amen.